Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Dender and shortly. And of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Our first up since the New Year ticked over, we've been keeping you updated with a series of feature stories on different aspects of the Women's World Cup, which we'll continue to do till the tournament kicks gets underway in July. This week, we'll talk to the Sydney Morning Herald's Vince Regari, who's been all over the breaking news, including the story he broke that the Matildas World Cup opener against Ireland is set to be shifted from Allianz Stadium in Moore Park to the Olympic Stadium in Homebush. Not officially announced as we go to air, but Vince writes, the move has the firm backing of FIFA President Gianni Infantino and will ensure a near record crowd. Why can't we do the same at the MCG for the Canada game? Maybe we can. I'll ask Vince to get Gianni onto it. Then back in November, we reported that the entire board of Juventus, including President Andrea Agnelli of Super League Infamy, had resigned amid allegations of presenting false accounting information to investors and producing invoices for non-existent transactions. Fast forward a couple of months and the Italian Football Federation has docked the club 15 points. The City R Giants had been third place, but the penalty will drop them to 10th. Of course, our go-to man on all things Italian football is Adriano Del who amongst his wide-ranging brief works for ESPN, Sky Sports and Optus. And of course, while we've got him, we'll get a few questions in on the ladder itself as Napoli continue to dominate and perhaps even the the Azzurri women's side as the Women's World Cup gets a little closer. And speaking of World Cups, World Cup corner, we'll wrap it all up. Edge, another busy week in football. You're looking uh, very well over there. In fact, very the most relaxed edge, just sort of gradually as the World Cup halo drifts off you, uh, uh, you're living the, the higher life, or let's just say a, a more relaxed life in Bangkok there, mate. Oh, I wouldn't say I'm relaxed, Rob, but I'm uh, feeling good today. Had a great weekend up in Chiang Mai with some work and uh, looking forward to talking all things football. What's the, where's this push for the Matildas to play at the MCU? You know FIFA have a real Rob and that there mm. is no uh, matches allowed to be played in a oval stadium. They must be a rectangular stadium. So where's this push for the Matildas to go to the MCG? It's just not going to happen. I know this push is just building incredible momentum. You wouldn't be believe it, Edge. I mean, I've been... Uh, Are you um, the only I, one on the bandwagon? Yes, but the bandwagon's got to start somewhere. Well, I think and you need to get the FIFA, const, uh, uh, the FIFA constitution and articles changed. When was the last time, Derek, FIFA paid any attention to their own constitution? If it suited them and it was going to put a whole lot of loot in their account, surely they'd see common sense. I'm not sure if FIFA would ever see uh, common sense, Rob. I, I tend to side with Michael on this one, and they're probably they're probably not going to do it. But feel free to give it a go and send us your petition, and I'll give it my signature. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. I know nobody's agreeing with me so far. I know when uh, when Joey Lynch was on last week, he he also gave it short shrift, but I'm going to give up. And uh, no, we if just it- cannot have any elite football. Um, at the highest level played on an oval pitch. It's just, uh, we just can't do it. Um, oh, for God's sake. Willem, please, could you step in here and back me up a little bit, please? Uh, surely 90,000 plus people at the MCG, oval pitch or otherwise, uh, is the right decision to make. Yeah, all right, shotgun with your Rob on the bandwagon. Not that I think it'll get over the line, but just to keep you company, I'm happy to, uh, happy to jump in with you on <laughs> well, I'm, I'm asking Vince uh, anyway. 
Tell me, uh, Will, about this been a cacophony of A-League news. There's been shocks on coaching fronts. Give us the latest, Willem. Musical chairs on the managerial front. Michael Dwight York, MacArthur, no longer. Seven months he was manager, uh, and he reportedly leaves after an all-time spray uh, after their 1-0 loss to Adelaide on Friday. He said to have called his side a pub team. He criticised the standards of individuals and the league more broadly. Club chairman Gino Mara and CEO Sam Kreslovich were in attendance. Uh, Mara reportedly intervened at one point. Uh, but it doesn't look like he's been sacked based purely on this behaviour. It does look like a genuine parting of ways. He's been released to pursue other opportunities and Michael Ruiz are now swirling uh, that he could replace Steve Corica at Sydney. Uh, and those with long, long A-League memories will remember that those two are 2005 championship teammates. Uh, but not a bad not a bad stint for uh, for York at MacArthur, despite this sort of surprise uh, surprise end. Won the Australia Cup, qualified from qualified them for the Asian Champions League and probably proved a few wrong as well. Yeah, and who can uh, not forget that Dwight York spent a lot of time under Sir Alex Ferguson, who is renowned of being the grand master of post-match sprays. So uh, maybe he learned it off uh, Sir Alex. Um, uh, having said all of that, it is a bit of a strange one, isn't it? I mean, it came out of the... The blue. I think Andy Harper broke the story while commentating the Western United game. So, yeah, it sounds like it was a very quick decision, but maybe you're right, Willem. Maybe um, he's just deciding to uh, cool his jets until an opportunity comes at Sydney FC. Would be a good fit. He's a, a big name at Sydney FC in that first championship year. And you'd have to say that he's short tenure at, at uh, MacArthur has been successful. The big story internationally is that Juventus have been docked 15 points for false accounting following a hearing at the Italian Football Federation, as Rob mentioned off the top. That leaves them 10th in Syria. The penalty is more severe than the nine-point deduction recommended by the prosecutor, while former football director Andrea Agnelli has been banned from all football activities for two years. Also receiving a 30-month ban was former... Sports director Fabio Paratici, who's now football director at Tottenham. Spurs are seeking clarification as to whether this ban extends beyond Italy. So, Rob, Adriano will flesh this out a little bit uh, for us very shortly. But for now, uh, they look like Robinson Crusoe on this matter, but maybe not for long. Yeah, we do spend a lot of time focusing on the English Premier League. So you you just have to look at, uh, say, one of the huge clubs of, of uh, England, perhaps Manchester United, it's uh, even Arsenal, Liverpool. If the story uh, was around them, then it would be front page news, front and centre. Sadly, it's no surprise given that Juventus's uh, uh, history with the Calcio Poli scandal of not quite 20 years ago um, that they're a club right in the middle of this. So it'll just be interesting to, to run the thread through as to whether pressures of the Super League and, and the necessity to, to maintain competitiveness um, was behind this. It'll, I'll, I'll be interested to, to see how Adriano responds to those questions. Arsenal's big league atop the Premier League remains intact after an Eddie Nketiah brace helped them to a 3-2 win over Manchester United. Nketiah's third and fourth league goals of the season bookended a brilliant Bukayo Saka strike, although they were pushed all the way by United, who'd opened the scoring through Marcus Rashford. In mid-table, Liverpool and Chelsea's mediocrity continued with a nil-all draw, while West Ham climbed out of the relegation zone with a 2-0 win over Everton, who are Derek in real strife once again. But we'll go back to Arsenal, as we do each and every week, because they continue to put themselves in the headlines. Eddie and Ketia, uh, all title challenges need a bit of value that nobody really saw coming. And uh, in place of Gabriel Jesus, he's found a winner here in a, a tight game. 
and the lead does remain at five points with a game in hand in Kedia. Yeah, I think for me, the man who no one saw coming. No, apart from uh, Mikel Arteta, of course, who has always maintained publicly a, a faith in, in Eddie and Ketia, despite many, even with a fit, Gabriel uh, Jesus uh, pointing out that that is an area of the pitch where Arsenal could uh, do with uh, strengthening. Um, and yes, two more goals in a big game. He's not a flat track bully. Uh, Eddie Nketiah has been scoring in the big games recently. I was a little bit worried with the winner because I think the shot from Martin Erdegaard was going in anyway. In Nketiah's touch, he was borderline offside, which was a bit of a heart-in-the-mouth heart moment. And he managed to, to direct the ball uh, sort of closer to David De Gea, not away from him. So it was, you know, all, all fair play to him. The first goal, the header was a, a fantastic header. Um, but it was just a little bit of an anxious moment as we had a, we waited to see whether VAR were going to uh, we're going to rule overrule the goal. But the fact that Arsenal didn't um, sort of say, "Look, a point will do. We'll keep our title rivals just where we can see them," and actually drove on for for the winner. I thought was was amazing. And uh, nineteen games gone now. We are now finally halfway through the season, and with fifty points for those nineteen games, that is certainly. You know, Edge and I wouldn't have dreamt of that in our wildest dreams. Not even Arsene Wenger managed 50 points halfway through a season. So, yeah, it's a truly incredible time to be a gooner. Edge, the pressure's on now. It's all yours to lose. Would have been the very late kickoff there in Bangkok. Uh, Derek's mentioned Martin Odegaard there. Could I just get a word from you on him? Uh, precocious talent. He had it all come to him very quickly, then had to grind it out for a few years and for a little bit looked like he might have been uh, one who it did come for a little bit too early with his move to Real Madrid and then subsequent sort of moves around to find first team football. But he's still, I think, only 23. He's captaining the club uh, and he's driving them back towards the, the very pointy end of, well, they're at the pointy end, driving them towards success that's eluded them for so long. So just a word on his maturity at such a young age. Well, he's been fantastic, hasn't he? He's really been the heart and soul of the Arsenal um attacking formations and um, Arteta made the point when he joined the club that there was another six or seven clubs that were chasing him and not and, and that Arsenal fans shouldn't underestimate uh, the capacity and uh, the upside of uh, um, of Martin Odegaard and um, and we've all seen that haven't we since uh, he joined the club and I noticed he made some comments that he just felt so at home at Arsenal that uh, he felt like uh, every one of the players was one of his best friends and that uh, Playing football has never been more fun. So, um, yeah, look, it's a it's a fantastic uh, uh, little ride that he's been on. But I'm um, I just want to take something up with you, William and Ketia. I don't think that he is um, the man that no one saw coming. Um, the, the question mark was whether he was going to stand up and whether he was going to make a contribution that would help Arsenal get to the to the line. And um, and you'd have to say that he did that on the weekend, uh, that scoring two of his four goals so far this season. So he goes into the rest of the season with a lot of confidence. And Arsenal will now uh, play uh, a couple of teams that they should win. And they're probably more challenging than the games where the spotlight was on them to see if they could win. Now they've got to play teams lower down the table, um, Everton away from home and then Brentford. Uh, they're matches that they should win and uh, the pressure will be a little bit different because now it's all about the table. So um, as each week ticks by, Derek and I 
uh, keep loosening that lid, Rob. Look, I'm enjoying it vicariously because, you know, Arsenal is not a club that I hate. I remember uh, when I used to uh, to travel, I remember going to the Ferret and Firkin one time, uh, which I don't think, Derek, is, is that far away from the old Highbury. And uh, I still remember hearing the chant of uh, some happy gooners, and I don't even remember what game it was. It was uh, who to U to B U to B Guna. Am I right there? Have you, that would have been something you chanted from time to time, Derek. That was a pretty good rendition, uh, Rob. I must admit, uh, the intonation was good, tone was good. Yeah, I think, I think you'd be okay as a plastic gooner if I ever took <laughs> you to a game. Well, mate, you know I'm more than capable of jumping on a bandwagon. So, uh, uh, you know, red Arsenal, not that far away. So, uh, you know, I'm sure Liverpool fans are throwing eggs at their uh, devices as they're listening to me say that. But um, I would love to watch a game with you on one one of these days. Sounds like a date. Let's jump onto Socceroos Amatilda Central for the Green and Gold Army to finish. Matt Ryan's off the mark with RZ Alkmaar, which is very nice to see. Uh, in goals, they enjoyed a 3-1 win over Fortuna Sittard in the Eredivisie. And Edge, they could be on for a run here. 17 games into the season, they sit second, two points behind Ajax and a point ahead of PSV. So they are right in the mix. And Matt, straight in. Yeah, so he should be straight in too. We know his quality. We know um, from the World Cup in, uh, in Qatar how good he is. And uh, who's the other uh, famous Socceroo that's played for AZ Alkmaar? There's been a couple, but there's one particular one who's been, who was a ripper, a very underrated Socceroo in the Pim for Bake time. Who was that, Willem? Do you remember? Would have been would have been the great Brett Holman, would it not, Edge? Correct, Brett Holman, who was a, a scorer of two goals at the 2010 FIFA World Cup in South Africa and uh, a player that uh, is maybe a little bit unheralded because he came off the shoulder of the, uh, obviously, the uh, 2006 uh, golden generation, but a very good Socceroo. And Matt Ryan, following in those Socceroos' footsteps at AZ Alkmaar, good luck to him as they have a crack at the top three. Holman did really well at Alkmaar and got the move, the big move, uh, to Aston Villa, and he tells the story. I'm not sure who the manager was, but he got signed, and as he walked into the ground on the first day, the manager walked out the other way with his boxes and said, good luck, son, I've just been given the Tijuana brass, and it uh, yeah, never really took off. Uh, from there. Uh, to Scotland, Celtic have moved into the last 16 of the Scottish Cup. Aaron Moy with a double man of the match there as well. Uh, Celtic next face Dundee in the league. Dundee also advanced in the Cup this week with a 3-0 win over Stirling University. Not a club that gets much of a mention on this program. Uh, the opener there scored by Aziz Bayic. And yet another Aussie is on his way to Scotland. Uh, Jimmy Jago, who would have been, I'd say, within our Top 35 or so, just missed World Cup selection there, uh, has left Eupen, or Eupen in Belgium uh, and has signed an 18-month deal with Hibernian. Uh, and I couldn't let it go, Rob. A mention for my man, Adam Taggart, another fo- forgotten socceroo, uh, came off the bench to earn the points for Perth glory uh, in a 3-1 win over Melbourne victory. There's always hope. Uh, Adam Taggart, he's a striker. He puts the ball in the back of the net when he's in form. So uh, there is uh, some of his career left if he can just get... Uh get it going again so well done Willem, Derek, Edge, thank you gentlemen, all done there. We are going to talk to Vince Regari after the break, loving Vince's work uh, uh, reporting on the Women's World Cup uh, specifically in recent times around the uh, well not yet announced move of their opening match against the Republic of Ireland in the World Cup and uh, and also the, 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 the massive uh, uh, ticket sale announcements that are coming through in recent times so uh, stick around, we're going to talk to Vince about that and maybe we'll squeeze a couple of questions in about the A-League towards the end next on box to box hey hey it's chemist warehouse time and we're getting closer to willem michael derek damien valentine's day so right now at chemist warehouse you can buy your fragrances online and enjoy huge discounts across the entire range guess what percentage you can get off willem when you go down to chemist warehouse up to what percentage oh 
20, 30, you'd be generous. But as it's Chemist Warehouse, 50, 60? Mate, 80%. I've recommended, can you believe it? I've recommended retail prices. Edge wouldn't be able to buy them in Bangkok uh, over there. Uh, Calvin Klein Eternity Intense for Men, 100 mils, 39.99. You know what you're going to save? 55 bucks. Derek, um, are you going to get, uh, you still uh, got the, um, the uh, uh, I don't know, the romance um, in your life? Will you be buying uh, Valentine's gifts? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Rob. It's uh, something, the date I circle in the calendar first every single year and uh, <laughs> certainly we'll be heading down to stock up on perfumes for my heavily pregnant wife. See, he's going to do it, but he's taking the P15S out of me as he responds. Uh, t- talking about, uh, uh, I think the, uh, the the opening date of the Premier League season gets circled in his calendar. Uh, Calvin Klein Eternity, Michael, if you're going to buy it for some special lady in your life for women, 100 mils, eau de toilette, $32, save 62 bucks. Well, I could probably get it here cheaper, but it won't be the real stuff. But you're guaranteed getting the real stuff at Chemist Warehouse, Rob. Correct. That is exactly right. Those are just a couple of examples of the incredible savings you can get at Chemist Warehouse. And as I said, Valentine's Day's only about three weeks away, so now's the time to buy. Shop for products online, in-store, or click and collect today. Chemist Warehouse, they're great savings. They are, of course, every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and it's been a while since we've had our next guest. He's been a regular and a huge supporter of Box to Box since we got going. But uh, right now, I think uh, in the the group of... Sporting journalists who cover football in this country at the highest of high level. Uh, the bloke who's sort of shouldering everyone else out of the way is Vince Regari from the Sydney Morning Herald. And Vince, it's great to chat to you again, mate. How are you? Uh, thanks very much, guys. Yeah, appreciate the kind words. Um, although there is uh, plenty of room for more sports journos in Australian football, um, it does get pretty lonely in Australian football press boxes. And I'm definitely not shouldering up all the others out of the way. We need as many people covering the game as possible. No, no, Especially at this point, uh, you know, with so much going on, on mm. and off the field, good and bad, we need, uh, we need, you know, we need honest people looking at the game with, you know, switched on scrutiny, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no. In all seriousness, you're 100 percent right. We had Joey on last week, and Joey's one of those uh, real prestige journos that, that that gets the the great stories out there too, mate. But um, we love reading your work, and some of that great work that we've been reading over the last couple of weeks of the stories. Well, certainly the one that you broke about the uh, Matildas uh, World Cup opener against Ireland. Now it hasn't been officially announced yet, but it seems uh, a given that it's going to be shifted from Allianz to Moor Park. We have talked about it a couple of times since the uh, the story broke. So so when did this one come across your radar and and insofar as the the stature of the event in australia uh surely a full house at the olympic stadium uh, uh brings it to the like front and center radar of all sports fans let alone football fans absolutely so i, I first heard about this actually uh i was in Qatar still um when this one came on my radar and i, I heard this was a possibility of being discussed at a pretty high level sort of because socceroos did so well and had some time off afterwards. I didn't really get a chance to chase and run it, but um, when I when I you know got back on the tools, that the jungle drums were, were beating louder that it was going to happen. And, and as I wrote, I, th- I think last week, um, yeah, or maybe the week before, I don't know. I'm still in that. Uh, it still feels like that between Christmas and New Year's period for me. I'm all over the place. I don't know what day it is, but, um, <laughs> but I, I wrote then, uh, and, and I still believe it's the case. It's just a matter of time until it's confirmed um, that this game will be moved, uh, Matildas and Ireland to. 
uh, a core stadium or the Olympic Park, which, I mean, no-brainer really, to be honest. I think they're not going to have any issues selling the game out. Uh, if you can have 80,000 people at a Women's World Cup opener in Australia, the opening game in Australia, of course, there's one a couple of hours before that in New Zealand and Eden Park kicking the tournament off proper. But that uh, did my research on on the internet on that one. And, and it turns out if we get something around the vicinity of 80,000 people to that game, that'll be the second biggest Women's World Cup fixture of all time. Um, so to start a tournament of, you know, and, and I think this is going to be the biggest one yet, of course. But it seems to be building every edition of the Women's World Cup more and more prominence, more eyeballs, more interest. So to start this one in that way, uh, it just makes sense for everyone, really, uh, mm. including the Matildas, who I know are thrilled at the at the idea that they could play in front of a crowd that big. A lot of them never have. Um, so it'll be a hell of an experience for them, a hell of an experience for Ireland, who's never even played at Women's World Cup before. Imagine that. Game one, 80,000 people. Welcome to the big time. Um, I think there's there's a few fans who are a little bit upset about it because I don't think it's the most popular stadium in Australia. It is a bit... I don't know. I, I don't know exactly why. To be fair, I, I can't say I've uh, sat anywhere other than the press box. It's a, a core stadium in my short time in Sydney, but it doesn't seem to be a place that fans love to go. But surely with a full house, the atmosphere is going to be absolutely sensational. And, um, and yeah, start this one off on, on the right note. I know Edge is just champing at the bit to get in and ask you some questions, but there is one bandwagon, Vince, that a lot of the experts who know a lot more about football than I do are suggesting, Rob, mate, you're off your rocker. There's no way in the world this is going to happen. Uh, FIFA won't play, as Edge said, before you joined us, uh, a match at a, a circular stadium. And the point I'm getting to, Vince, is if it's good enough for the opening match to be moved to, to Homebush and let's consider the fact, as you wrote in your article, that uh, FIFA will and Football Australia have to negotiate with the broadcaster of the NRL and their prestige event, the State of Origin. Why can't there be a conversation with the Victorian state government and FIFA around the potential of moving the third game in the group against Canada from what will barely be a 30,000 capacity uh, crowd at Amy Park to the MCG, which is on a Monday night. The AFL haven't released their fixture till late in the season, so they, they, they can work around it. And and the third part of the puzzle is the fact that seven are the free-to-air broadcaster of the Women's World Cup, so it's in their interests. So, I mean, is this just an outrageous thing to, to, be, to be floating or... Um, is there any chance, if there's some momentum, that a conversation could start about uh, about that as well? Oh, look, I don't think there's any chance, but I don't think it's an outrageous thing to talk about. And to be honest, uh, everyone involved should have had this conversation uh, a long time ago. And maybe some people in Victoria should have been a little bit more switched on as to the possibilities here. The fact that you might get a, a, an incredible crowd like you're talking about at the MCG. I think it's far too late now in terms of Look, the AFL don't have their fixture out yet, I don't think. But, you know, you bet your bottom dollar there's going to be AFL games in and around the MCG, in and around that time. Um, and FIFA does require that bump-in period. The difference with this core stadium situation is, I think, um, they're willing to make an exception one time for a stadium that's already in the bid book, already in the plans, and that from a certain date was already going to be FIFA's to sort of take over as they do for World Cups. I think it would be a different thing entirely for them to have to get their heads around a stadium that's not in the plans currently and they might have an even shorter period to control and do whatever they need to do um, to get it ready for the major event. Um, but it's a shame because I like your thinking and 
I like the like, and this is probably something we'll talk about a little bit more now. But like you know, I get the sense that Australia still doesn't really understand what is about to happen. Uh, the Victorian government probably didn't really maybe know what was about to happen when all the negotiations were taking place uh, for the stadiums for the tournament. Um, I understand the AFL needs the MCG, but this is one of those once in a generation events on on. I, and I think maybe we'll come away from this Women's World Cup thinking, okay, this is actually probably the third or fourth biggest sporting event in the world now. It's getting up there close to an Olympics. It is massive in terms of viewership and all that. It's one of those things that you make an exception for if you're the government. You probably want to say to the AFL, listen, guys, you know, I know this is your your spiritual home, but just for this one year, find another way to go about it because it's of national interest and importance and um, a shame. To be honest, that the uh, I mean, you think about eighty thousand at core, fifty thousand at Suncor, and then thirty thousand at Amy for Canada. I'm not a huge fan of of that. It's sort of you know the descending crowds there. The, the Matildas deserve more, but it's oh, it's too late. It's a shame. It's just a shame. I think we're letting the Victorian government off the hook here. Um, I mean, what's clear is the Victorian government haven't got a rectangular stadium for elite. Uh, sporting events of this nature. You know, they've got Amy Park, which is okay, 32,000. We know it's got foundations. They can put another tier on it, and it could have been in the bid book at sort of 50 or 60, which would have been okay. But uh, the Victorian government has not been supporting uh, the Randball game. It's very, very clear that they don't. You know, There is no really significant international fixtures going down to Victoria. New South Wales is leading the way. And I think, the Vic- uh, Rob, it's a good idea. And uh, for those people who live in Melbourne who expect everything to be at the MCG, this is the world game. They've got in their statutes. It must be a rectangular statute. If Vince writes an article, someone will take notice. <laughs> I wish. I wish it was that simple. Yeah, I just think I that the Victorian government has uh, dropped the ball here. <laughs> they should have been in their advanced planning looking to um, make sure they had a stadium in that bid book because, uh, to be honest, um, you know, um, good luck to Queensland and for all the Queenslanders listening, uh, you know, you've got some good games in this uh, FIFA Women's World Cup. But, you know, Melbourne is um, the so-called self-appointed sporting capital of Australia. I'd have to say that uh, a reputation is on the line, Vince, and uh, they've let women and women's football down. Yeah, yeah, hard to disagree. And look, just on, I hope don't like taking big matches and World Cups and Men's World Cups and all that to Oval Stadiums and all that. But you know, some of the most famous football venues in the world are still ovals. They still have running tracks around them, or, or in the case of Maracanã in um, in Brazil, doesn't. I'm not sure if it does or not, but I know it's a circle. So I'm not sure the well, MCG's uh, shape would have been a deal breaker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I just reckon if the MCG was available, FIFA would have been like. Yeah, bloody oath. Let's let's play some games there. But what you're saying is still right. There's nowhere beyond Amy for um, big football matches to be played in Melbourne, aside from Docklands, which we know has the ability to bring the seats in mm-hmm. um, and turn that into a quasi-rectangular venue. But correct me if I'm wrong. From memory, the last time there was talk of doing that in uh, and bringing the seats in, uh, people were whinging about the impact that would have on the surface, on the wings for football match, AFL matches. There's a so, suggestion that it costs nearly $60,000 on each occasion. And going back 20 years, I remember very well the Rugby World Cup at the time had some massive matches played there that they didn't bring the sides in on one occasion. Yeah. So and why did they bloody even build it that way? Like, yeah. Well, it didn't. What's the sorry, point I've of to, putting that? Um, I've got to jump yeah. in. The MCG 
and Docklands don't fit FIFA's criteria for international events of a World Cup standard. So we're sort of dodging the issue here. The issue is the Victorian government didn't prepare a stadium that was suitable to FIFA's criteria. And the Victorian government has dropped the ball on this one. We can talk about the MCG being a, uh, a sort of, you know, last minute sort of white night to get a big crowd, but it's not about that. It's about respecting the the biggest women's sporting event in the world, arguably bigger than the Olympics. I've worked at the last two. These events are massive. The Australian sporting public have no idea what's coming down the train here, the train line. It's going to be absolutely fabulous. And the Victorian government has let women's sport and women's football down. They don't have a compliant stadium. As simple as that. Look, I know there's been a lot of chat in Australian football about the grand final decision with the APL and and people saying, oh, is Football Australia biased in terms of bringing all the Socceroos and Matildas games to Sydney and New South Wales? But And look, I still don't agree with the grand final call or the way it was handled. Um, but I've got to say, the government here is so eager for football. They're keen to listen to anything. They're keen to throw money at it. Uh, and there's stadiums of all different shapes and sizes in cities and regional areas that can cater to these events. Um, and the rest of the country is sort of uh, playing catch-up, even Queensland, to be honest. I mean, this is a tangent. We don't have time to go down for sure, but there's only one rectangular venue there. It's Suncorp, and for a lot of games, it's too big. There's nothing below that. And in a lot of the other parts of Australia, there's only one sort of rectangular option in each city. And, you know, there's, there's Hindmarsh in Adelaide, in, in Perth. They've got uh, HBF Park and all that, but that's that's obviously um, getting a facelift at the moment. But... Yeah, it, it, and I just wonder what's going to happen if we do end up bidding for a Men's World Cup at some point in the next 10, 20 years. You know, they're going to have to address this, but it's just a shame it's come too late for the one tournament we do have uh, for the women. Let's segue into another couple of questions just about sort of more local football-related uh, items. Uh, Vince, you and I both worked at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Uh, I've sort of expressed some opinions about how deflated I was after the high of the Socceroos' performance and what I thought was a, a real springboard for the A-League, um, especially those Socceroos that are participating in the A-League. It could have been a, a such a, a moment of goodwill, but it was shot down by what happened at the Melbourne Derby uh, in late December. I just want to... It's the first time we've had a chance to talk to you. I just want you to talk about the impact of that on you. You're a great um, football-loving person. You understand the significance of uh, the impact of these types of things, but how did it personally impact you? Oh, the whole thing was pretty heartbreaking. Um, I came back from Qatar on, a, on an emotional high that completely um, physically roasted, mentally shot. Just I was knackered. It was such hard work. Didn't have a day off in a month. Um, but you do that because you love it. And especially when we started winning those games with Socceroos, it was like, righto, can't wait to get home here and just sort of ride this wave. And then, yeah, I, I, I had people for those couple of weeks... Uh, asking me, mate, are you all right? Like, cause I was so, it comes down so hard from, from such incredible highs. And I've, I've, I've sort of had irregular work for the last couple of months. I've uh, had a lot of time off catching up on days off, missed from the World Cup, you know, seeing family and friends in, in different states and only working a few days here and there. Um, and I've sort of needed it because uh, it's just allowed me to just take stock of things a little bit more, breathe in and sort of, get a bit of equilibrium in terms of where we're at now after all that stuff and and, uh, and where the A-League's at and, and how do we recover from here. And I, I look forward to returning to work this week properly on Wednesday. But, um, 
it's been tough. It's been tough, and it shouldn't. And the, the the worst thing is, it shouldn't have been tough. It should have been awesome. It should have been easy. And I feel for all the players, especially guys like Craig Goodwin and Mitch Duke, who's not in the A League at the moment, but it's a proud A League product, who are saying all the right things in Doha about okay. We've done our bit. General public of Australia, please come out and watch us give our competition a chance. And then, and then for things to happen the way they did was just, uh, yeah, heartbreaking is the word I keep coming back to. And uh, yeah, it's, that's about it. Your emotion around this story is clear for the way you've responded, mate. And um, we feel pretty much exactly the same way. Uh, it's something that um, you know we all know football in this country, whether it's administrators and fans in this instance, have got this incredible capacity to shoot ourselves in the foot uh, just when things are going well. But fortunately, the story that we started talking to you about uh, at the top of our conversation, the Women's World Cup, is going to be a massive sugar hit. So hopefully we can trade uh, positively off this one, mate. So Vince, thanks again for, for coming on, mate. Stay well when you get back to work, mate. We'll be enjoying your copy when, uh, when you punch it out and uh, we'll get you back on again real soon. Thanks very much, guys. After the break, we are going to talk to Adriano Del Monte, sort of an all-Italian guest sort of uh, heritage uh, list here. We're going to talk uh, Serie A, we're going to talk Juventus, we're going to talk uh, just what the hell is going on over there next on Box to Box. Yes, everybody's buying Hoyt Spices. I never, ever go to a Coles or an independent supermarket and not see Hoyt's in someone in their trolley, in their basket, in their little disposable, or not reusable, I should say, shopping bag. It's uh, summer in Australia, but it's always time for outdoor cooking over there in Bangkok, isn't it? They love cooking on the street there, don't they? Oh, they do. They fire up the barbecue. They've got these gas burner things. That just. Mm. I, want, I want to get one of them uh, mm. on my barbecue back in the mm. And they cook those fish balls on the skewers. They're not literally fish balls but they are balls made out of minced fish with lots of spices chili and all that sort of stuff fish sauce in them they are delicious you can make them at home and you can cook them on your barbecue if you like you can season your steaks with hoyt's oregano salt and whole black pepper the four color peppercorn mix i absolutely love it um and derek you've been uh, out at the uh, uh, barbecue at the hillsville sanctuary recently what's the last thing you cook with a, with a bit of spice oh i uh, i made uh, my patented uh, what came first curry because it has chicken and egg in the curry and uh, mm. I would have used uh, cumin, garam masala, uh, turmeric and coriander from See, the oyster range and a bay leaf as well just for extra what? flavour. I am just licking my chops uh, at the very thought of eating that because uh, spices, you know, and great for flavour. You don't have to uh, to put in lots of butter and oil and all those sorts of things if you're using spices, do you, Willem? Because you come from a house that has great cooking uh, with uh, with your mum. Oh, it's a house that has great cooking, but uh, no matter how good your cooking is, sometimes you're under the pump, Rob, and I find myself at the minute, most mornings for breakfast, being quite time poor, in and amongst watching uh, hours and hours of Premier League football. Four boiled eggs, that's all I can muster a lot of the time. But mm. with words, herbs, and spices, salt, pepper, paprika, oregano, yes. doesn't get much better. So, words gets you through the day. Four boiled yeah. eggs, they can make that magic. That's it. You heard it. Eggs, they can make anything in spices. They just make it a taste sensation. Change the mood of your food with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. 
Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, we said off the top of the show, back in November, we reported that the entire board of Juventus, including President Andrea Agnelli of Super League Infamy, had resigned amid allegations of presenting false accounting information to investors, producing invoices for non-existent transactions and a range of other charges. That story now has come full circle with the City R Giants now docked 15 points by the Italian Football Federation to talk us through that story and maybe a bit more City R if we get the chance to talk to him. The man that we always go to for Italian football matters is Adriano Del Monte from ESPN Sky Sports and of course our very own Optus. How are you Adriano? I'm very well mate, doing a bit of everything at the moment. It's good to be back in Australia but obviously a busy time in Italy with uh, one of the biggest stories, well, probably the biggest story off the pitch since the last scandal they were involved in. We're here to talk about the Juventus story and the 15 points. So uh, a lot of denials coming out, but uh, surely uh, the Italian Football Federation doesn't just slam a 15-point penalty on a club of the stature of Juve um, without having some pretty firm evidence. Can you give us some background, just sort of brief us on the story for our listeners who are unfamiliar and some background as to, to the actual facts of the case? What Juventus have been accused of doing, and obviously the, the Federation literally believe they have very strong evidence of is essentially fudging their books and ensuring that the, their capital gains have uh, been uh, just a little better on paper than they have been in reality. When we talk capital gains in football, we're essentially talking about transfer dealings, the money coming in, money going out. And there have been a number of players that have gone out on loan from Juventus or been sold by Juventus that have essentially been uh, overvalued to make it look as if uh, they've offloaded more than a certain player is actually worth. And I think the best example to, to keep it very simple and put it all into perspective is the infamous, uh, well, it wasn't a trade, but it was the sale of two players between Juventus and Barcelona, of course, two powerful clubs, but two powerful clubs in significant debt. And that was the the deal a couple of years ago during COVID that involved Artur from Barcelona going from Barca to Juve and Middle and Pjanic going the other way. Now, two players who, solid careers, but two players who at the time would have been worth, let's say, between 20 and 30 million euro. But as per the official sales, each club paid one another in excess of 70 million euro for the players. Now, what that then showed is, is that they had offloaded a 70 million player, allowing them to well, to make it appear that they had balanced the books, which in reality wasn't the case. So that is probably the most well-known story of, of what events are essentially being accused of at this point in time. But if you, if you just look at social media, you see very quickly the Juventus fans very quick to point out some other dealings from some other clubs who have also been accused of um, similar similar dealings and, and, and similar financial work from their respective ends. And there were over 10 clubs who were initially investigated. Juventus were one of those. Now, the reason that Juventus has, I guess, their process has been fast-tracked is because they immediately appealed the decision. Other clubs are yet to do that. Now, other clubs include big, big clubs, Milan, Roma, Napoli, rumoured to be up there as well, which would obviously be a disaster given the season they've had. So, those top clubs, amongst many others, are still to be investigated further. So with that in mind, while the story is very early for Juventus, there could be more to come and further developments with some of the other clubs that are allegedly involved as well. So obviously not a good 
time for Juventus again to have to go through this. They're certain to appeal, no doubt about that. But overall, another big, big blow to Italian football and all of the recent progress made. Yeah, and, and you mentioned some of those clubs, obviously Napoli in, in particular, um, okay. haven't won the Serie A since, well, they've only won it twice in the golden days of Maradona back in 1990, mm. the last one. You look at the Gazzetta della Sport and uh, my Italian isn't that good, but uh, it's it's good enough to know that uh, Juve is uh, is top to bottom of the online edition of that paper. So, um for the uh, non-Italian speaking listeners uh, to the show, I mean, this has gone far beyond the, the speculation stage to the charge stage. This could really unravel the, the entire season if, if not only Juve are kicked mm. out effectively of, uh, of the top four and ironically the Champions League um, mm. chances given Agnelli's uh, position around Super League. But uh, what, what are the... Uh, the, the experts on the ground that you talk to saying about some of those other clubs, are, are you expecting charges to, to occur uh, within the next weeks, months? Am I expecting this to, to be the beginning and the end of the punishment? Absolutely not. And I, I do, look, again, it could go one way or the other. Juventus are certain to appeal. There's absolutely no doubt about that. They're sticking true to the fact that they don't believe they've done enough wrong, I guess, to to warrant a 15-point deduction at this stage. The initial report before the deduction was handed out did state that it was only going to be a nine-point deduction. So perhaps a bit of a surprise it was at the last minute uh, increased to 15. And from what I'm reading and from what I'm being told from those on the ground in Italy, with regard to the point deduction, it can only now either stay at 15 or be wiped completely. So that's with the point side of things. With regard to Champions League and European competitions, well, that's UEFA, that's FIFA, that's another kettle of fish altogether, and there will be further investigations done by those organisations. Now, in scenarios like this, we have seen in the past, we saw AC Milan in the past, except a, a year, I believe it was a year or two banned from UEFA competitions, they were in the Europa League at that time, and they passed up that opportunity, and Actually, it took those couple of years off, rebuild, and now they're in a decent position. So we could see further punishments from UEFA if they are to open an investigation. But I think at this stage, far too early to speculate because I think there's a lot more that needs to be discussed internally. And I think the Juventus, Italian Federation, UEFA, I think they're really, really in the early stages of their decision-making with regards to what's the next best step to take. But again, from my understanding at this point in time, if Juventus have been found guilty, and this is the punishment for this case, perhaps not a dangerous precedent is the word to, to, to use here, but I think that we will see further punishments for multiple other clubs in the Italian top flight. We know that a lot of the clubs, not only Italy, but right around Europe, were struck hard by the COVID pandemic. And look, there's some very, very well notable names that were signed in Serie A at that point in time, where it's very clear that similar strategies were used. And that's not in defence of Juventus at all. If Juventus are punished for that, absolutely well-deserved. But I think that won't be the last of any clubs coming under further investigation. So early one on this, but do keep a close eye because more to come for sure. Juventus, up until the recent game against Napoli, where they were humbled uh, to, to, to quite a large extent, were going pretty well. They were one of the form teams in Serie A. Um, Obviously, they now look at the league table and find that they've tumbled down 
to tenth, and it's not inconceivable that with a good run they might be able to sort of scamper back up the league again. All but it will be it. They've got quite a lot of work to do. But do you think there'd be concerns? You know, just about yes, we can handle this off the field with our lawyers, etc. But what's the impact likely to be on the on the um, on the playing squads and the morale there? And has Allegri or the players said anything yet? Yeah, well, look, the players, uh, a large majority of players immediately took to, to social media, as they do at this day and age, and immediately threw their support behind the club you know, the, the morning after the announcement was made. It was a very bizarre match. Uh, obviously, last night, initially this morning, Australian time, Juventus Atalanta, very entertaining, but a 3 3. Juventus had barely conceded a goal at home all season before this match. Have gone and conceded three off the back of five. They conceded against Napoli. So, look, I think it certainly is going to have some impact on the players. Many of the, especially the top players, will certainly have their futures now come under serious question. The likes of, I think, Dusan Vlaovic from a, a younger, emerging perspective, big money, potential chance for Juventus to, to, to cash in there, if, especially if there isn't Champions League football next season. Obviously, some of the more experienced campaigners, Di Maria, Paredes, who have come in recently, Rabio. These players potentially look to, to move away. What does the future hold for Federico Pierre? Still one of the best players in the world. Does he potentially stay with Juventus if they're without European football for three years? I, I think this will start to potentially take a toll on, on, on the club and on the club and those going forward. So, one to keep an eye on. But I think in the meantime, what are Juventus, the squad, these players, what are they to focus on? And for me, I think it's the Europa League. I really feel that if they are to adjust themselves on the pitch and really put their foot forward and, I guess, try to salvage something from this campaign, they could potentially win the Europa League and that would earn them, obviously, a spot in next season's UEFA Champions League pending no ban from the UEFA competition. So I think Allegri has already hinted that they will perhaps focus on the Coppa Italia and the Europa League and prioritise them, but obviously they'll still want to put their best foot forward in Serie A despite the significant double-digit Pointed, um, disadvantage between them and the top four at this stage. Is what's happening here almost the you know almost like the result of that, or symptomatic of where Italian football and clubs like Juventus are in terms of like they're having to, you know, supposedly and let's say allegedly at this point cook their books in order to 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 to, yeah. to you know to to make the uh, everything line up. But ultimately, and Yelly's point was that. Clubs like Juventus, Milan, Inter were never going to compete with Europe's best unless they were competing on an even footing. And that this 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 really is just symptomatic now of then of that Super League bid failing. Do you think there's any kind of sense in that? Yeah, look, obviously this is uh, this is very complex. This is very very complex for for multiple reasons. And and obviously, look, the, the certainly not a supporter of of the Super League and obviously I think Angeli did lose his way uh, not a little bit quite significantly in that period but I, I certainly understand where, where they're coming from the, look the, the spending and, and where it's at at the moment is the Premier League has built its, its brand its product up to a level now where the very best clubs in the history of the sport can no longer compete and this is I see these debates all the time online and this is not a cycle. This is not Serie A's dominance in the 90s, Spain's dominance in the 2000s. The Premier League is going to be the richest league forever. I don't believe it's a cycle. Unless something changes. 
And uh, I certainly do feel that something needs to change from a UEFA perspective because they can continue to to have the Champions League and continue to, to control, I guess, the monopoly of European football. But the Champions League will not be the Champions League as we know it with the English dominance and the English wealth with four clubs from England in it each season. So that's certainly not defending Angeli and Juventus and what they have done. But certainly that, I guess it was a, it was a last-ditch hope that they could salvage something. Obviously, fast forward to now, Agnelli is now suspended from football dealings for the next two years. And I'm expecting potentially more to come from that. There's, obviously, they could have further impacts with the likes of Paratici, who's now at Tottenham. His future certainly remains unclear. So it's quite unfortunate, particularly for these other clubs now who are going to be caught up in this mess as a result of what Juventus has done over, well, I guess this desperation period for them, which uh, obviously the Juventus faithful are not happy about at all. And that's where we bring it to the fans. We bring it to those that were most against the idea and the concepts of this Super League. The Juventus fans have been very, very vocal in, I guess, their unhappiness with how their board, how their president, how their leaders led the way in this series and essentially have run the club back into the ground now. And there was actually a banner unveiled by the Juventus fans at the Juventus Hapalanta match overnight where they said in, in 2006, referring to the Calistopoli scandal, they still, they felt then, they still feel now that they were innocent. But now they're saying, well, we're guilty and that's all on you. And that's like, yeah, that's all the board and that's everyone who stood down that have let not only the club down, but more importantly, the fans. So it's just such a disappointing, messy, complex moment that just puts another dagger in Italian football, which was already struggling as it was, given where it once was. Not that I don't see any way back now, but with its, well, with the biggest fish in Italian football now doing this and going through another investigation yet again, even if they come out the other side better for it, I still think now it's another long way back to getting anywhere back to competing with the world's best. We're less than six months away from the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Italy is in a very tough group with uh, world number three, Sweden, uh, Argentina, not quite uh, uh, the standard of the men's uh, world champions, but 29 ranked uh, uh, and, and South Africa, who are always going to be dangerous around that sort of uh, that 54 mark in the world, literally 17th, of course. So what's your sense of, of, of Italian um, football fans' interest in this competition? I know we asked you last time and uh, and it was mm. slowly building. Is, is that a positive story we can we can look at for Italian football right now? Yeah, I think in general, as we discussed last time as well, uh, the, the women's game is certainly building. And when it comes to Juventus and the Italian top one, I'm very well connected there because, of course, friend Joe Montemoro is the head coach of Juventus women. So it's quite incredible that an Italian-Australian is not only at the centre of the significant progression that women's football in Italy has made in the recent period, but he's also at the centre of the progression of the Italian women's national team because at Juventus, seven or eight of his key players are key players for that women's national team. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite nice that he's playing a key role in that. I do think the interest is certainly building. I do think, though, it is kept separate, probably from some of the dramas. And, and even though Juventus, obviously, one club, men's and women, still the Juventus women's team is a... It's just a different experience. It's in the most positive way. I've really enjoyed immersing myself in, in the women's game in Italy and it's 
just a, a really refreshing approach to football. And I think as a result, it's attracted perhaps a slightly different crowd, a slightly different fan base, and, and it's growing steadily, which is just so great to see because there is a lot of talent, as you would imagine, out there. So, look, I don't think that the latest issues will impact the, the women coming through negatively at all. Obviously, it is a cloud over Italian football in general, but I think ahead of a, a Women's World Cup where, yeah, no, Italy aren't expected to do too much. It should get through this bit with respect to uh, particularly Argentina there. But, yeah, look, I, I think it's just a, a nice step forward for, obviously, a very proud football nation. but a football nation that are, are yet to really assert themselves at the top level of the women's game. So I think they're in a, in, in a progression phase here, next World Cup or two, and then hopefully we can start to see the next generation of Italian women competing with the very best in uh, world football. Yeah, we'll watch that story with interest, mate, and uh, as we will watch the the ongoing story of uh, City A, Juventus, and all any other clubs that are dragged into that turmoil. Adriana, we'll let you get back to uh, to covering the Australian Open for your international commitments. Mate, out there, as our listeners can hear the... Uh, the crowd's uh, gradually building up for um, a big match tonight. I think it's uh, a demon or the Djokovic. We don't cover a lot of tennis on this show, mate, but uh, since you're out at the Australian Open, we won't as well mention it, mate. So you'll enjoy the tennis, mate, and we'll talk to you again soon, uh, uh, probably uh, when you're back uh, back in Italy in in, uh, in Milan covering your usual beat. Pleasure as always, guys. I've got a week more of the Australian Open, and then it's straight to the Milan derby. So we're straight back into it, and we'll chat again soon for sure. Ah, mate, living the dream. Well done, Adriano. <laughs> Until next time, the great Adriano Del Monte. He works for all sorts of big-name media outlets around the world. Our very own Optus Sports, of course, who we see him on covering uh, football from time to time at the international level. ESPN, of course, Sky Sports, uh, always generous with his time. Okay, stick around. After the break, more Women's World Cup in World Cup Corner. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We hope you've enjoyed the show so far. Great chat with uh, Vitz Regari earlier on in the show and, of course, Adriano Del Monte. Not uh, often he spends time in his old hometown of Melbourne these days, but uh, always uh, great to have him on the show when he does or otherwise when he's in Italy driving around the uh, uh, the streets of Milan or wherever he happens to be in Europe. Uh, now, Edge, you've taken the baton for World Cup Corner this week over from Willem. You're steering the ship, mate. So well, what tidbits have you got for us to, to whet our appetite for the tournament less than six months away? Well, we talk a lot about the World Cup here in Australia with obviously a Matilda's focus with our mate audience being... Uh, Australian. However, I thought we'd go across the ditch because there was two very important matches that happened over the last week, and that was between the football ferns of New Zealand and the US women's national team. And with less than six months out, the Kiwi supporters, they got a bit of a taste of what's to come, not only on the field with a 4-0 and 5-0 drubbing uh, by the, the, the Yanks, which really got the job. But for me, the story was off the field. On Wednesday of last week, 12,508 fans packed into Sky Stadium for the first of the two friendlies, but it was uh, a record-breaking 12,721 who turned up to Eden Park for the first uh, women's international held at that stadium, and that was a record for New Zealand 
football ferns as that country builds up to a, a massive World Cup. Rob, um, probably the biggest sporting event ever to go to New Zealand, this Women's World Cup. And we just have to sort of put this in the context for the New Zealand listeners who might be, you know, enjoying about the World Cup coming and thinking, nah, rugby's a lot bigger. But I just wanted this important statistic, Rob, and get your view that in 2019, the Women's World Cup in France broke viewership records with 1.12 billion viewers. For comparison, the Men's Rugby World Cup in the same year only drew 857.28 billion viewers. So uh, Kiwi fans of the All Blacks, get on the football fans because uh, they've got a big job with the with the, the, the United States women's national team in their group, and they got a bit of a taste of that, Rob. Uh, could you imagine uh, Auckland and Eden Park for their opening fixture? I imagine it's going to be a, a an event to remember in New Zealand sporting history. Yeah, the Kiwis will jump on the bandwagon, that's for sure. And look, the numbers speak for themselves, don't they really, Edge? I mean, anyone who's watched a Rugby World Cup, as I know I have watched lots of and covered many in the 2003. I uh, remember being there on that uh, famous night where Johnny Wilkinson etched his name into the pen of uh, England's all-time sporting greats, breaking Australia's hearts and then watching uh, World Cup finals uh, in New Zealand with packed houses and passionate Kiwis. But those numbers, those broadcast numbers tell the story, don't they? There's only so many people you can fit into a stadium. But uh, the choice is made when people are watching it in front of a, a screen back at home and when uh, the numbers speak so loudly, then it suggests that uh, the Kiwis will be uh, hosting, as you say, the biggest sporting event ever held on, on New Zealand soil. Unfortunately, whilst we have realistic hopes, and, and I think the the pendulum has, has sort of swung in favour of Tony Gustafsson's preparation and some of those high, early hidings we copped, provided that the Matildas can maintain that form of November where they beat Sweden 4-0. But uh, we haven't seen the, the football ferns' uh, preparation um, at the same sort of standard, and uh, and it might be just too late to turn anything around. But hey, you know they uh, they're going to be hosting it. The home support always does seem to to dial up a notch, unless of course you're South Africa, uh, which uh, and Qatar, of course, most recently in the men's World Cups uh, uh, weren't able to trade off that. But uh, you know ultimately, uh, skill and talent will out, and um, and you know the best teams will, will get through. So Derek, what, you're a rugby man yourself as well. Do, do you agree with uh, Edge's uh, proposition and that the numbers speak for themselves? I think as Edge, I mean, I think Australia's going to be shocked at how big this tournament's going to be. Never mind New Zealand. And I, I think we'll, we'll we'll just see the groundswell, you know, start building really from now on. And now as all the media outlets and everyone else just starts getting behind this juggernaut that's heading our way and it's just going to be so much fun. And uh, the New Zealand coach, uh, Yitkat Klimkova, who's a big name in women's football, she's got a job ahead of her because they really were, if you've seen the highlights, Rob, they were outclassed and it could have been a much worse defeat across those two matches. So they have a lot of work to do. I'm just wondering, uh, Derek, if you think that big losses like this so close to a women's world club can have a, a damaging effect. Is it maybe better that they might have chosen not to play the US ahead of these uh, important World Cup games, try and play teams that could build um, maybe a little bit more confidence because you'd have to say that if you're a New Zealand uh, fan, you know, that's a big mountain to uh, to climb when you've been so comprehensively beaten. They are the world number one, but you're in the World Cup and you're hosting and there's added pressures, media and public expectation. They might have just... Uh, might have decided that um, playing the Yanks maybe in hindsight was not not a good thing. What do you think? 
double-edged sword of thing. Edge, we, we spoke about this with England and the Men's World Cup and the build-up they'd had, losing lots of games in the Nations League. They didn't pick these games. They are just the games they were given uh, in that format. But, the, you know, didn't come into the, the World Cup with a lot of confidence. Uh, however, I don't know. Uh, you've got to be the best if you're going to compete and tune up as long as they can, you know, take the positives out of it. Um, and at least they now, now now know the standard that is expected. Um, yeah, maybe give yourself one gimme to, to to tune up. But I, I actually, I think playing the best opposition is the best way to improve as a team overall. So as long as the coach can look after them from a mental, psychological point of view, they should be all right, I would have thought. And if we just go back to the Matildas for a moment, as um, the clock's counting down, the clock's counting down for Ali Carpenter too, arguably one of our prime movers in the Matildas. She's obviously on the race on her recovery from an ACL injury. And uh, we've just seen what class can do. We saw Harry Suter's impact for the Socceroos off basically a reserve game for Stoke and 30 minutes in the first team. I just wonder whether the situation for Ellie will be the same because we all know that that right-back position, the, the Matildas are a much, much better team when we've got a free-flowing Ellie Carpenter going up and down the wing, Rob. Do you think um, we might see a late run from Ellie and um, and if she's um, almost uh, fit and uh, physically okay, do you just put her in anyway? Well, we're talking about the same injury, aren't we? So if Harry Sutar could come back with the right level of cardio fitness from an ACL injury and he has had a similar standard of rehab to what uh, Ellie would have had at the at the world's leading women's club, uh, Leon, and, uh, and supported by the Matildas, you'd think that uh, that she'd be right. Obviously, we all know and are learning more and more each day that, uh, that women's ACL injuries seem to be more frequent than men's, but... Uh, if you if you try to put that aside for one moment and say the rehab has been done, then I think it's just a given edge, don't you? You just have to put her in and uh, uh, at least give her the opportunity to prove herself. Oh, she's a frontliner, no doubt about it. It'll just be whether um, her, she's ready to go. If she's ready to go physically, uh, she's got to be in the squad and given every chance to start the first game because uh, she is one of our best, best players, no doubt about it. Uh, Rob, that's World Cup Corner for this week. Back to you. All right, well done. Nice little tidy wrap there, uh, uh, Edge. You enjoy the the rest of your week in um, in Bangkok. I'm going to sit out from uh, stoppage time this week, so the three of you guys are going to uh, to steer the ship there. So uh, you enjoy that when you get to it, boys. Just going to jump in with a very quick little tidbit. It's not Women's World Cup related, but it is women's football related. Uh, congratulations to the Pakistan national women's team. Uh, they have just contested the Four Nations Cup uh, in Saudi Arabia against Saudi Arabia, Comoros. And just, uh, they've ended up losing in the final to Saudi Arabia. Uh, their national team only formed in 2010. They played until 28, uh, 2014 and then had an eight-year uh, hiatus. So back on the pitch as of last year and up and running once again. Yeah, I love these stories. And if, you, if you're if you looking for a podcast as well, a really good podcast on women's football, uh, we talk a lot about the Guardian Football Weekly on, on this show as uh, one of the, the world's best football podcasts. But uh, but search in your in your app store, whether Apple or Android or whatever, uh, for the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. That's another outstanding podcast that um, that uh, I uh, I got uh, tipped into by our friend Matt, Max Rushton on, on his Facebook feed uh, only last week. Derek, thank you, mate. Um, I'm sure you've had a listen to that one uh, from time to time. Yeah, have done. And thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Make sure you subscribe to Box to Box. Stoppage time and offside wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. Make sure you like us on Facebook and give us a rating if you can. It always helps to pump us up the ratings and join us throughout the week as those very podcasts drop. And we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.